But today we're going to be in Revelation 5, and it is the continuation of the second vision that we started studying last week. So if you've got a Bible, open to Revelation 5. We're going to get kind of settled there as we think about what John is doing or what he's experiencing at this point. I want you to remember what Jesus said. When he heard the call and looked and saw the door, he had heard Jesus say, come up here, I'm going to show you what must take place after this. So if you'll remember, he had just seen and heard Jesus and received the letters to the seven churches from Jesus. And then he's, he's being told, now, you're gonna, now I'm going to reveal to you what's going to happen after this. After this present time, as we look into the future, what is going to take place? And for them, or for us, let me say it from our perspective, some of these things have already taken place. Some of these things are currently taking place, and some are still yet to be fulfilled and to be consummated. And that's just the way Revelation unfolds from the time that Jesus gives the revelation until the very last day these things have been happening and will continue to happen until his work is absolutely finished, until it's absolutely completed and he makes all things new. And as John steps in, if you'll remember, as John steps into heaven serving as our eyes and ears, Revelation 4 tells us he steps into a heavenly worship service, uh, to the heavenly throne room that's oriented on God, the one seated on the throne, and, and he sees a holy God and a worthy God, the only one who is holy, holy, the only one who is completely holy, the only one who is completely worthy, and that was the point of the service, sermon last week, God alone is holy, holy, and holy worthy, so worship our creator, a worship of our creator is the only worship that unites and satisfies worshipers. Unlike anything else we devote our worship to, God showed himself in this heavenly worship gathering. He showed himself to be the only one really worthy. He does not need us to assign value or worth to him. Because intrinsically, by his very nature, he is worthy. He doesn't need us to assign holiness to him. He doesn't need our our um, exaltation of him to set him apart in any way. He is holy based on who he is. He is the only one who is holy in this way. He is the only one worthy in this way. And as a result, he is able and rightly receives real and true worship. That's where we're at, Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to pick up from that. But before we jump into it, not only do you need that recap, you need to know that I was making some assumptions last week that enabled me to even begin to apply it to our life. I know what I was doing because the broader context, I already know, we all know the broader teaching in the New Testament that we as God's people get to worship him. But in the text, as you move from Revelation 4 into 5, there is a massive problem presented that doesn't immediately get called out. And it can only really be uh, perceived in its implication in chapter 4, but it's going to come to a height in chapter 5. And I want to set it out for you so that you can see it, and then you'll, I think you'll understand as we walk through chapter 5. So as you think back on the reading of chapter 4, John steps into the throne room. Everything is oriented around the throne. God is at the center. The one that appears is Jasper and Carnelian, and around him is a rainbow. And before him and around the throne are 24 uh, elders who have their own thrones and crowns on their head. They are angelic beings. They are representative of someone or, or God's people on earth. 
They are representative of something earthly, but they are not earth. They are not creatures like you and me. They are not humans. They are heavenly beings, angelic beings. And then, not only do you have the 24 elders, you have four living creatures that also represent things on earth, but who are angelic beings. And you have this image that displays the holiness of God that is so clear and so certain, the idea begins to be displayed, although not immediately called out. It is so holy. How does someone or something unholy even consider being there? You see, I assume that because of who God is and his holiness, he was the only one rightly worshipped, and I assume that we were able to worship him. But there is no expression of creaturely or earthly worship in that passage at all. There's only heavenly worship. It's only true worship happening around the throne. There's no, there's no human standing there. There's no creature on earth. Only those representations. And I can't help but wonder how in the world then do we get there? You see, I can't help but think that if, if we really got what was happening in this passage, if we really understood Revelation 4 in, in, in its fullness of holiness, I think we would have joined Isaiah last week in saying, who, I, who also had a throne room vision, right? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean, I, for, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. As Isaiah stands in the, in the presence of the holiness of God, he can't help but understand and see his own unholiness. We had to assume, having been made holy already, in order to even consider that we would ever enter into worship of this holy and worthy God. And that dilemma, that, that problem, this beginning to be implied already, is going to come clear as we get into chapter 5, when we see the only one worthy of any of this of accomplishing this, of, of taking it on and, and finishing it to its fullness, is the lamb who is slain. So let's look at it. Revelation chapter 5. We'll read through it. We'll pray. And then we will dig in. <clears throat> then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one, let me say it again, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. And honor and glory and blessing. And I heard, it's the first time we're going to hear earthly worship in heaven realm. And I heard every creature and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, <laughs> we are a people of unclean lips who live among a people of unclean lips. How could we ever hope to stand in your presence and sing your praises? We are people so easily satisfied with the trappings of this world, with the pursuits of our flesh, the desires of our, of our human existence. Our hearts... <laughs> hold competing desires with you, against you. And yet, you have made a way. You have, you have enabled us by your Son, Jesus. You have done a work that unites us in worship with all the heavenly beings, with all of creation. Would you move on us today? Would by your spirit, would you reveal to us today the work and the reasons that you are worthy because of who you are, because of what you've done, because of who we get to be, because of who you are and because of what you've done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are, back in the throne room, surrounded by the worship of, of these heavenly beings uh, all looking at God and, and, and extolling and, and exalting him because he is our creator. We find our existence, all of the heavens find their existence with him, from him. He is the source. He is the uncaused cause. And immediately in this chapter, John zooms in and he sees something in the one who's seated on the throne. He sees something in his right hand, a scroll. We need to talk about this scroll. We're not going to be done with it this week. Actually, when we pick up in January, this is where we're going to be at this scroll and its seven seals. Now, some suggest that the original language doesn't mean a rolled up scroll, although it could. 
And he suggests that it, it, it really refers to something that's more like a book. It's not like a book like we're used to a book, but one of the earliest forms of a book where, where pages, papyrus, are laid together and glued together with, with some sort of paste on the end, not bound strongly, but still holding together an opening as a book. And people become really dogmatic about this. And the reason is, is because they're, they, they get really dogmatic about whether it's a scroll that's rolled up or whether it's a book that's b- being held in his hand. I think either imagery really works for what Jesus is seeking to reveal or what John is seeking to tell us. But people become really dogmatic about it. And it's for the reason I want to warn you. I, I warned you last week and I want to warn you again that these are metaphorical images. These are symbolic Images, this language that's intended to cause us to, to see something and imagine something, not because it works out in our physical world exactly, like an angelic being that looks like an eagle in flight. What, what does that look like as it stands still before God or falls flat on its face? It's metaphoric language, right? That's the idea. And, and so, so, so people get really dogmatic about whether this is a scroll or whether it's a book because they're trying to, trying to look at this image and, and assert dogmatic assertions. They're trying to make dogmatic assertions to, to support their interpretive lens in which they approach the book of Revelation. I think we have to be careful about emphasizing too much of these images when we're not told what they are, we're not, we're, we're not clearly shown what they are. We've got we to handle this with care. We've got to be cautious. But there is something we can look at the scroll and begin to see. Some immediately and some in the broader context. But there are some things that we can begin to see, whether it's a scroll or a book. It's written on both sides, which is by itself surprising because they didn't have paper like we have paper. You just flip it over in the notebook and write on the next side of the page. Like their, their paper was rough. And it was difficult. If you write on one side, it's difficult to write on the other because of the fibers. You'd write on the good side, the smooth side. It was, it was rare to find a, a scroll or a book that was written on both sides of the text. The scroll has seven seals. It's reminiscent of the scroll that, or the, of the, the, the vision that Daniel has. And he says, hey, he's told, take what you've seen. Take what you've heard. Write it down and seal it up. And it's Daniel 12, 4, I think. He's told, seal it up to the time of the end. And so there's this scroll now that appears that has Old Testament connection that now in the end of days is being told, hey, we want this unsealed. It tells us that there's something about to happen. Something that God has made known in the past, has always known, that's about to be revealed. The writing on both sides speaks of the fullness of its content. Based on the broader context of chapters 6 through 8, I think I can go ahead and just say what, what, what I would suggest that's in this scroll is God's plan of judgment and redemption for the remaining history of mankind till he makes all things new. He doesn't write the whole history out. That's, that's been prophesied and promoted and, and inscripturated through the Old Testament. But from the time of Jesus till the time of his return, there is a, there is a scroll that's been sealed, a revelation that not, that's not been known, a mystery yet to be revealed. And here it is, all sealed up. But here's the problem. 
when the angel comes out, it's a mighty angel with a powerful voice that speaks across all of the heavens. Who can open the scroll? Who is worthy to open the scroll? No one. No one anywhere is able to answer. No one in heaven. No one on earth. No one under the earth. And I, I think that that means no one of the dead, right? No, no one who is alive and no one who has ever been alive is able to open the scroll. They are unworthy to approach the throne, unworthy to take it from the one who sits on the throne, and unworthy to begin to crack those seals and, and reveal the message Now, this hits John really hard. I mean, just think about his perspective. Just think about what he's went through to to be at this place, to to see this thing, to to be experiencing what he's experiencing. John, he's been transported in the spirit from a world in which myths and men are being worshiped. I mean, you think back to what we were studying in the letters to Revelation, the God's people, Jesus's church was being called over and over to hold fast because of where they dwelt. They dwelt where where Satan's throne was. They were surrounded by Satan's synagogue. They were surrounded by the worship of of mythological gods and mankind in in the pursuit of emperor worship. And he's transported into this place where worship is finally happening the way God intended it from the very beginning where he is at the center and he is the one exalted and he is the one extolled for all that he's done and for who he is. There's no, comp- there's no competition. There's nothing even close. There's no competing desires. There's no competing voices. There's one. He is at the center. And John sees firsthand true Worship of the only one who is truly holy and truly worthy. And then he sees this scroll. And intuitively he knows. It's got to be opened. It's got to be opened. If, if, if what's to come is going to come, if what's to come is going to happen, this has to be opened. This is what he's been told to come and see. And when the call goes out, no one can answer it. I, I just can't help but wonder if, if, we take it so, if we so take it for granted that we get to come and gather in a building in the comforts of heat or air conditioning, depending on the season. Listen to amplified music that's been practiced and well-performed. If we so take it for granted that we can come together and worship that we don't recognize that if these scroll if this scroll wasn't open if these seals weren't broken there would be no worship today. There'd be no reason to celebrate the holiday of Thanksgiving. Throw Christmas out. Get rid of Easter. Because it would have ended at the beginning. So John weeps. I mean, I think John gets how serious a problem this is. He weeps, he sobs, he mourns. He is so distraught that no one can open the scroll. 
Because he understands what happens if these seals don't get broken and no one reveals the message inside. And then he hears another voice. It's the voice of one of the elders. He tells John, stop crying, weep no more. Why? Because the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered He's shown himself worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And this is one of those moments in, in Revelation. It, it, it's it's so, so crazy. One of those moments in, in Revelation where John tells us what he hears, and then he looks to see the reality of it. Lion of Judah, the root of David. Now, I don't know what that picture is going to draw, draw to mind. Like lion and a, a root, and, I mean trees and, a, and an animal. But then he turns and he looks. And he sees a bloody lamb. <laughs> and if you haven't figured it out by our reading of it, or at least by your understanding of Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is these things. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. This is an allusion to Jacob's prophetic blessing bestowed on his son Judah. So Jacob pronouncing blessing over his son says these words in Genesis 49, 9 through 10. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The, shep- the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, immediately you might be thinking, man, I would love for my dad to... to stand over in me and say, oh, everybody's going to obey you and you're going to get a scepter. You're going to get authority that's never going to end. And I'm sure Judah in his way thought, man, I'm special. But Jacob wasn't saying these words so that Judah could get a big head. Jacob was prophetically uttering this blessing because it was pointing forward to Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's not just a cub. He's not just a baby lion. He is the lion. He is the king of beasts, the powerful and mighty lion. He's full grown. He's the one promised to come and rule eternally. He's the one in whom all are going to come under his authority and obey him. And immediately you might think, "Ah, not everybody obeys Jesus. One day they will. And that should frighten those who don't today. One day they will. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. The the root of David. Jesus is the root of David. Again, there's this illusion or this looking back to Old Testament words. From the prophets this time, Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And if you read Isaiah 11, you see pretty quickly, in light of the New Testament, that this is a messianic prophecy that Isaiah is telling us and preparing us to meet Jesus. We didn't know it was Jesus back then, but it's fulfilled in Jesus. Then 11.10, just a few verses later, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The line of descendants, beginning with Solomon, looks forward to this ruler who's going to come in the line of David, who happens to be the son of Jesse, who is going to rule forever, who's going to have an eternal throne, who's going to have an eternal rule. He is going to be a a king forever in an eternal kingdom. 
Jesus is not merely a descendant of David, though, is he? He's the root. He's the source. You see, if he were, if he were just a, a, an offspring of David, he'd be like a branch. But he's the very root. He's the very source. He's the one who's going to rule forever, and he's the very source of the ability to rule forever. And here's Jesus. And immediately, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what John is imagining as he hears these things. I, I know that John's familiar with the Old Testament. The writing of Revelation is clear that he knows the Old Testament. And he's using language that's directly used in, in the prophets and in, in um, the stories of the Old Testament. But what do you think he's expecting to see when he looks up? Do you think he expects to see a literal lion? Or a tree with a root? I think he's thinking he's going to see a warrior. I think he's thinking he's going to see someone with, that looks powerful and mighty. I mean, you would be afraid to meet in a dark alley because you know he could take me. But that's not what he sees. He hears this. The lion of Judah, the, the, the root of David has conquered when he looks up, he sees a lamb as if it was slain with seven horns and seven eyes. And again, metaphoric language. Picture that lamb. It doesn't make sense. It's not, what? But horns in apocalyptic literature. And this is, this is consistent with apocalyptic literature that goes back into the Old Testament and in the history of Israel. Horns always represented power and authority. And so, yes, this is a lamb that was slain. But these horns, these seven horns represent power and authority. These seven eyes, we're told immediately, these represent the, the, the seven spirits that have been sent out. We're getting a Trinitarian picture of God on the throne and, the, and, and Jesus the Lamb, who is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, and the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit that's been sent out to make it known, to exercise and bring this truth. You have to admit, I don't think it's what he would have thought he was going to see. But again, John, drawing on these Old Testament perspectives, gives us something to see that can only be defined as we apply it to Jesus. I'm not, I'm not going to list them all. These things are listed in your notes on the version event. If you have it, I can give it to you later if you want them. But over and over through the history of God's people, the lamb has a special prominence, has a special place. Here's just a few. Israel's firstborn was spared. All the way back at the very first Passover, you know, they're in Egypt, enslaved. Israel's firstborn is spared if they... Slaughter the lamb and paint the blood on their doorposts. That's Exodus 12, 3 and 5, 3 through 5. Lambs were offered in the temple morning and evening as daily burnt offerings. Exodus 29, 39 through 41 and Leviticus 1, 4. Isaiah prophesied of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 at the end of 52 and into 53. He prophesies of this suffering servant by whose wounds we are healed, Right? But he likens him to a slaughtered lamb, Isaiah 53, 7. And in case, none of that, oh, wait a minute, is it really Jesus? Is Jesus really the lion of Judah? The, the, is, is it really Jesus? Well, the New Testament unveils for us or reveals for us 
that it is. John the Baptist, drawing on this Old Testament imagery, applies the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 9 to, or 1, 29 to Jesus. Paul calls Jesus the Passover Lamb in 1 Corinthians 7. Peter refers to Jesus as the Lamb without spot or blemish in 1 Peter 1, 19. If we had any doubt who this Lion of Judah was, or this Root of David was, or this Lamb that was slain with seven horns was, all we have to do is look to the Scripture and see time and time again. John wants us to look into the center of this worship service and see Jesus. And really this sets out the paradox of what is at the heart of the Christian faith. The lion that is the lamb didn't conquer by use of force or over his enemies by slaughtering them. Instead, he gives his life to be slaughtered. It's shocking to me, striking to me, that in a culture in our day and age, we're still looking for someone powerful and someone bold and someone courageous. We want someone to speak up for us and stand up for us. We're looking for that guy that's out there that'll just, just tell everybody else just what, what, what it is. This is the way it should be. I'm going to exercise power. And force and control. I'm going to get people to do what I want them to do. When the example that's set for us, when the way to victory has never been told to be by the rule of force or by slaughtering, by overpowering, but by humbly allowing ourselves to be sacrificed. Jesus did it and then calls us to it. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Speak truth. Don't stop being courageous, but endure the hard things that come as a result of speaking that truth. The greatest opportunity we have to exercise any kind of influence is to look more like Jesus than we do like the rest of the world who seeks to rule by power and force and coercion. Instead, by sacrificing, by by offering ourselves sacrificially with gentleness, truth wrapped in grace on behalf of others, just like our Savior. But Jesus becomes the whole key to this scene. It's on him that everything turns. And this, I, I think, probably the place that we need, probably we could best apply this to our own lives. Without Jesus, we have no reason not to weep. We have no reason not to weep. There's no reason for that elder to walk up to John and say, weep no more. There's no reason that John should not still be weeping to this day. Because if Jesus doesn't conquer, if he doesn't reveal himself as the Lion of Judah, as the the Root of David, as the Lamb that was slain, if Jesus isn't there, John should still be weeping that the seals are unbroken and the scroll is unread. We, we, We couldn't get to the end of this passage where we finally see the worship on earth join with the worship in heaven if not for Jesus coming and showing himself worthy. Without Jesus, we have no reason not to weep. Without Jesus, we will never know the, true, the joy of true worship. 
without him, without Jesus, the, 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 the rejoicing and the jubilant worship that's happening in the heavenly throne room is never something we would experience here on earth. We'd still be chasing after one that was worthy enough. We'd still be chasing after one that was holy enough. As I thought on this this week, as just considering it, I was reminded of C.S. Lewis's famous quote from, from his uh, essay called The Weight of Glory. He writes, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infant joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Maybe yours isn't drink. Maybe yours isn't sex. Maybe it's not ambition. But I know there's competing desires against the glory of God, against the worthiness of God, against the holiness of God in the heart of every person sitting in this room today. Because we are, just like C.S. Lewis said, a people far too easily pleased. We are like the people that Matt Papa wrote about in his song, At the Brothel Door. I would commend you to go and listen to it and, and pay attention to the lyrics. Throughout the song, he reminds us when we're standing at the brothel door that we are seeking something more. We're just willing to satisfy for the substitute, the pitiful substitute that we can buy, that we can purchase, that we assign holiness to, that we assign value to. We're willing to settle for that pitiful substitute, whether it be a relationship that we think we can't live without, a job title that we think we have no meaning if we don't have a knowledge that we think life couldn't be our life if we didn't have the right education. And then I started thinking about just the ways that we do this as a Christian people. Have you ever thought about what it looks like to walk into a worship room, a, a, a sanctuary, that then the show begins and the light starts flashing and the music is turned up to sound like thunder? Have you ever thought that we're trying to present ourselves at a place where it seems like something is flashing like lightning and rolling like thunder, like the very throne room of God? And we measure the value of our worship based on how we feel at the end of the show. Now, I, I want you to hear me. I want you to hear my heart. I want you to understand this before I go any further. I am not against it. I appreciate worshiping with lots of energy. I appreciate the people that have skills to think that way, the musicians that play and, and, the, and the sound folks and the, and the videographers and the, and the people that have the skills to put those things together in such a way that it is it's clear God's given them talent. And 
I, I don't have a problem so much with the event so long as it doesn't get in the way of the one who's actually holy and worthy of our worship. So I think the truest test comes is when you walk into one of those rooms and you're moved and you're just, oh man, the worship was great today. Was it great because the one you sang to and sang about was the creator who chose to be a savior? Or are we just settling for another pitiful substitute? Without Jesus, we have no reason not to. We, we have no reason to stop crying. Without Jesus, we will never know the joy of what true worship is. We will, we will never worship the creator if we can't worship him also as the redeemer. Because this is at the heart of the problem. This is the height of the issue. John steps into a throne room where true worship is happening and none of us can get there on our own. There is a chasm that separates it from us. There is a veil that must be removed. There is a path that must be paved. There is a way that must be shown. There is no way that we can join in this worship of our creator if we don't first worship him as our redeemer. If we don't have Jesus, we don't have anything worth celebrating. We have no reason to gather and give thanks for anything. But here's the beauty of what happens in this passage. We do have him. He's here. He showed up. He stepped in and John sees him standing by the throne. We do have him. Jesus, the lamb that was slain, is worthy to reveal God's will and ransom God's people. So weep no more. Weep no more and worship the lamb because he is worthy. Jesus is worthy to reveal God's will. He's worthy to approach the throne. Just imagine how frightening this would be for you or for me. I see the scroll. I want to go get it. Nobody else is going to go. I want to go get it. And then you start to take a step and then you realize how holy he is. I dare you try to approach that throne on your own. You couldn't do it. But he is worthy to, to approach the throne, to take hold of the scroll. Imagine he reached out and got close, right? Like he is there. He can feel the breath of the creator on him. He's there. He takes it. He's worthy to take it. God gives it to him. The one seated on the throne gives it to the lamb that was slain because he is worthy. You think he'd give it to you or to me? No. Because you're not worthy, and neither am I. And why is he worthy? Because he has conquered. He died, but he stands there alive. He rules with power and authority. Why is he worthy? Because he is the very fulfillment of God's will. The reason that John is drawing from the Old Testament images, the reason that John is drawing from these Old Testament illusions of, of the Lion of Judah and the Root of David and the Lamb that was slain, is because he's showing that Jesus is always the one that was being waited for. He was the one that was always being planned for. When the prophets were prophesying, when Jesus or when God was promising from the creation onward that one would come and redeem a people, ransom a people, it was always Jesus. Adam didn't. Noah didn't. 
Abraham didn't. None of these fulfilled God's promises. They all failed. The son of Judah didn't. Moses didn't. David didn't. They're all dead. They didn't conquer. They didn't rule. They didn't exercise any authority. But Jesus did. He is the fulfillment of all of these promises. He is the one who lived a sinless life, who was not overcome or having to deal with his own sin. He is the one able to die as the lamb without spot or blemish in a sacrificial way that his blood might atone for our sin. He is the one who is able to take up his own life and raise from the dead, defeating death. So in him we have one who not only atones our sin, but provides us with eternal life. He inaugurates the the history that is to unfold in front of them. And he is the one who will finally consummate it and bring it to his fulfillment. Jesus is worthy to reveal God's will to us. He's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. We're going to see that in Revelation 6 through 8. And Jesus is worthy to ransom God's people. His death and his resurrection is a worthy death. It's a worthy resurrection. Is there a reason why, why, why Jesus is resurrected? I mean, just, there's, there's not a lot. I mean, there's not a lot of people who came back from the dead, right? But why, why wasn't Lazarus' resurrection enough? Because his death wasn't sacrificial. And the only way he, he, he rose is when Jesus called him out. His resurrection was dependent upon Jesus doing a work. Why wasn't the boy that Jesus walked up to who was being carried out on a funeral spire, why wasn't his, his resurrection victorious and give us all the reason to worship? Because his death wasn't sacrificed. He was just a man, just like you and me. He wasn't Jesus. He wasn't the line of Judah. He wasn't the root of David. He wasn't the lamb that was slain. But Jesus' death, as we see, as the, as the worship unfolds, Jesus' death ransoms of people to himself. And what's really cool about this is there's, again, this Old Testament imagery, this Old Testament illusion that's, that's pushing us back to look all the way back to the time where Egypt, or I'm sorry, Israel, was ransomed or redeemed out of Egypt. It's just an interesting little side note. I, I think it's an interesting little side note that as, as we begin to see in Revelation, as we begin to see imagery of resurrection begin to take place, or, or not a resurrection, an exodus take place. That's exactly what Jesus told Moses and Elijah he was going to do when he stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with them. Go look it up in Luke chapter 9. You read the story of Jesus' um, uh, transfiguration on the mountain. Peter and James and John are there, and they're watching, and, and, and they see Elijah and Moses show up, and, and they're talking with Jesus, and Luke tells us what they're talking about. In the English, they translate it in such a way that you don't get it. Talking about his departure. But if you look at the footnote, I think most of the English translations use it as a footnote. If you look at the footnote, the language actually speaks of his exodus. Jesus is leading an exodus in which he will ransom people out of the existence that they live in today. Lead them out to a new land and a new place When he makes all things new. He is able to do this by his death and through his resurrection. He will and has ransomed God's people, a kingdom of priests. 
That's what, the, that's what the worship says. He's worthy to do this. He's worthy to, to um, sorry, let me say it again, to reveal God's will, to ransom God's people, and to receive our worship. Now, we're going to move through these pretty quickly, but I don't want to dismiss, I don't want to just brush past them. I want you to see what happens. So here we are, we've turned the corner, John's no longer weeping, he suddenly realizes, wait a minute, there is one worthy, God's will is going to be accomplished, there is one worthy, the, the, the scroll, the seals are going to be broken, the scroll is going to be read, we're going to get to see what's inside of there, but as soon as it happens, as soon as Jesus takes the scroll, before John has a chance to think or do or say anything else, worship breaks out. In verse 8, when they had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying. Now, there's lots of, lots of things around this new song. There's lots of, lots of ways that we could take it. I think in one sense, it's new in contrast to what they were singing in chapter 4. But it's also new in that it's focusing on a new work that's going to re- re- result in a new heavens and new earth. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. So here we have them worshiping. The four living creatures, the elders, fall on their faces. The ones who had just worshiped the one on the throne are now worshiping the lamb that was slain. He has shown his worthiness of worship because of what he's done. He's shown his worthiness of worship because of who he made us to be. He ransomed us. He, he brought us out of slavery. And look at what he's done. You ransomed people for God. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God. We're a people who now free to live under his authority, to exercise his authority, to, to represent him on the earth, they shall reign on the earth. The, the worship continues, but now it's focused on Christ. Then, verses 11 and 12. Then, then. So, so he, he sees that, and then he looks again, and he sees, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, so it's not just the, four, the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. I mean, that's only, that's, that's only 28 beings. Is that really that great a thing? Like if we're going off the size of something, is that really that impressive? But as, but as glory spreads, the worship spreads that to, to the point that there's myriads and myriads. And I don't know what that number means in real numbers, but it's more than he could count. Myriads of myriads. Imagine that in your mind. As, as I think probably thousands of thousands, myriads of myriads, more than fit in, in, a, in a stadium, a football stadium. But it seems to me what John is saying, that all the, all the angelic beings are now worshiping because the, the lamb who is worthy has shown himself. The whole of heaven worships. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The very, the very same thing that was being said of God, the one on the throne, is now being applied to Jesus, the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. All of heaven worshiping. And if it ended right there, 
And that was it. And would leave us. Man, I want to be a part of that worship. I want to know that Jesus. I, I, long to, I long to be that satisfied, to see the worth and the value of any one person. And it spreads. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in, and, and in the sea and all that is in them saying. Finally, the worship of God, the true worship invades a rebellious world where myths and men are worshipped. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Finally, the earth joins the song because the Lamb who is worthy has been revealed. Finally, our song is united with that in heaven And finally, that union is not just between us and heaven, but he shows us that that union is between God and the Lamb. Look back at it again. God and the Lamb that was slain are worshipped in one voice because they are one in the same. Worshipped now in unison, not just between heaven and on earth, but in union together. And they received all May they receive all the worship that is due them. And that had me thinking again, as I thought on that passage, it had me thinking about a, a book written by A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God, and a, a quote that he's known for as it pertains to worship, and it just struck me how we fight for so many things to stand united around. When the one thing we were given to unite us is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb that was slain. He writes, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by, not by, I'm sorry, they are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to one another, to, aha. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. If we could just learn this lesson. Without Jesus, we have no reason not to weep. Without Jesus, we don't even get to imagine what true worship looks like or the joy that comes from true worship. It's only in Christ and our worship of him and our lives given to him that we'll ever know what it's like to stand together alongside brothers and sisters in Christ, alongside a creation that, that, that extends beyond what we can see, but the heavens and the earth together unites around this one who is worthy. So, brothers and sisters, Jesus, the lamb was slain, is worthy to reveal God's will and ransom God's people. So weep no more and worship the lamb because he is worthy. But what does that look like today when you walk out of this room? As you mourn. Holidays are a hard time for people, right? Maybe it's the first one you've spent away from a 
loved one that's passed away. Maybe there's family that you couldn't be with. Maybe there's hardship in your family that is struggling. As you mourn, as you weep, don't let your mourning overshadow the hope that's brought to you in Jesus Christ. Because we have reason to rejoice even in the midst of hardship. As you rejoice in the things that bring you joy, don't ever displace the truth of his worthiness with some pitiful substitute like a mud pie when you have the opportunity to enjoy a day at the beach. I actually struck on this. I actually pushed on this a little bit as I, as I wrote that thing this week for our Thanksgiving. Thankful for, thankful to. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. We get so focused on what we're thankful for, we forget the one we're thankful to. As we mourn and as we rejoice, Jesus remains central to the realities of us being able to rejoice in the midst of hardship and continue rejoicing even when we know the things that we're thankful for won't actually fulfill us. In the same way that you do all that you do to the glory of God, as we discussed last week, let me encourage you, walk out this door and live for Jesus' fame. Be more committed to the fame of Christ than your own ambition. Be more committed to the fame of Christ than, than your own reputation. Be more committed to the fame of Christ in your life, living for his honor, for his glory, making him, as our friends in Calvary Family of Churches say, non-ignorable in all the places we inhabit, because he's the one who is worthy. He is worthy to be, to be preeminent and primary in your life. He is more worthy than the thing that sits behind the brothel door. He is more worthy than the thing that you can purchase with your money. He is more worthy than the thing you can devote yourself that's going to rot and fade. He is more worthy than any other object in your life. And as you turn to worship him, your worship is oriented towards him and his father. Worship and lead others to worship Jesus. Unite in worship around Jesus as members of his family. Serve him as you serve one another selflessly and faithfully. And when you go out today talking about all the things that your heart's taken with, make sure that part of your conversation is the worthiness of your Savior and Redeemer. And if he does not take your heart in a way which you have a desire to talk about him, I would ask you to check yourself. You may be a believer that's been deceived, that's kind of gone astray, or you may be ignorant of your own lostness. And the only thing you can do to ever cross the threshold from what is unholy to holy is place your faith in him and him alone. Put your hope in the worthy redeemer and begin to worship him alongside all the brothers and sisters who worship Let's pray.